Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi, this is Andrea Blythe, co-host of New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network. Today, we're speaking with Sally Wenmao. She is the author of Oculus from Grey Wolf Press in 2019 and Mad Honey Symposium from Alice James Books in 2014. Her work won a 2017 Pushcart Prize and is published or forthcoming in a public space, Poetry, Black Warrior Review, Guernica, The Missouri Review, Hidden House, The Best in the Net 2014, and The Best American Poetry of 2013, among others. The recipient of fellowships and scholarships from Kundaman, the New York Public Library Coleman Center, and Breadloaf Writers Conference, Sally holds an MFA from Cornell University. Sally, it is great to have you here. Thanks for being on the show. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Okay, so start. To kick things off, I'd like to start at the beginning and kind of look into how you got started as a writer. So I would love if you could share with us how you first started to engage with poetry as a reader and a writer. Great. So I have always read and written poetry uh, from a very young age. I think the first poem I ever wrote was probably in the second grade. Um I think I started developing more of a practice in writing poetry, maybe in middle school, which is also pretty early. I, I remembered I, I used to write poems about like ocelots and rainforests and <laughs> things like that. Um, uh, and and then also around that same time, a little bit after I started, I started playing a an RPG game. Um, where your avatar is in ancient Korea and uh, my avatar chose this path called poet and a poet in that game is also a healer. And I remembered within that game, there were, there were also um, weekly poetry contests. And I, I remembered always writing a poem for the contest, for the weekly contest, and always entering over and over again. Um, and all my poems were set in ancient Korea. <laughs> and uh, the, each week, uh, the contest would have some kind of theme, right? So I would write a poem on that particular theme for the week. And I, I did this for a long time. Um and I, I continued writing poetry long after I stopped playing that game. <laughs> I just love so much that a video game can uh, help, <laughs> provides an avenue for somebody to explore poetry in that way. <laughs> I think that's delightful. <laughs> yeah. Um, so who who were some of your early influences, um, poets who inspired you or teachers who um, helped you find your voice as you were starting to get it more and more into poetry? Yeah, so I think one of the first books of poetry um, I bought and read was probably 
the collected works of Edna St. Vincent Millay. Um, I remember while I was in middle school, I, I wrote a lot of rhyming poems and, you know, she, she is kind of a master of the sonnet and also a, a lot of her poems, like uh, the one she's known for Renaissance is, is rhyming. Um, and then, and then from there, I kind of uh, branched out a little bit and in high school, I, I went to the library a lot and I found, um, I found books by Audre Lorde, um, June Jordan, and Yusef Komayaka. And I remembered those were the three books that really, you know, made a, a very big impression on me um, as a high school student. And I also, I also had um, uh, Sylvia Plath, Ariel, um, and, and they really kind of informed um my 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 path toward poetry and then and then from high school I went on to major in creative writing in college and and one of my first teachers and mentors was Terrence Hayes and I I just remember being really excited in his reading contemporary poetry class because he mentioned Yusuf Komiyaka and Audre Lorde. And these are, these are poets that I didn't learn about in school that I just kind of discovered on my own at the library. So I was really thrilled and really excited that he was teaching these poets as a part of the curriculum. Wow. So um, how did you get from being like a, a reader and somebody who was interested in poetry to kind of wanting to pursue it in college and as a professional? Yeah, so I've always really wanted to write, I think. Um, even in high school, I, I just felt like it was the, the thing that I could do. Um, and, and so, you know, when it t- came time for me to choose a college, I, I, I ended up choosing a college that had a creative writing major rather than just a minor or a creative writing minor, which is more the norm. And, um, and I went to Carnegie Mellon and I was able to really focus on creative writing, which, um, which I, I don't think that's as common um, in, in other college curriculums. I remember looking specifically at programs that offered that um, and I think I think I had applied, and and I in in while I was mostly writing fiction, um, and then I kind of ran out of uh, uh, fiction workshops to take at some point. Maybe it was like my sophomore year of college, and then I started taking poetry classes again, um, where where they were workshops uh, where we were writing our own poetry, and I returned to poetry. In, in that time, and also um, one of my other mentors there, Yona Harvey, recommended that I applied to Kundiman, which is an Asian American poetry collective. And I was lucky enough to go, um, go to that retreat uh, the summer, I think, of my junior or senior year of college. And I, oh, yeah, it was my junior year of college. So, um, so going to a retreat like that and, and seeing like older 
people and mentors and um and you know even 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 peers to some extent uh pursue poetry uh, as um as something that is possible for a career that that really put me on that trajectory i think um especially being a part of this community and 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 seeing and knowing that there are others in the community who are making it happen for themselves that's um, that really informed, I think, my path. Yeah, well, I'm <clears throat> a lot of uh, poets feel like community is super important as as writers. Um, do you still like try to cultivate community as a poet and and keep yourself connected in that way? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, community is one of the most rewarding parts of being an artist or a writer because um, because writing is a very solitary activity, but it doesn't have to, um, it doesn't have to be a solitary practice. Right. Um, um, so I think being able to connect with other writers makes, um, makes the pursuit of writing more meaningful Um and also, you know, being able to encourage younger poets, um, especially younger poets of color or younger poets who are queer or women, um, that's, that is really important to me in general. Great. Um, so uh, you also received your MFA. Can you talk a bit about your experience in going through the MFA program? Um, did you find receiving and getting an MFA or the process of going through that to be beneficial for you? Yes. So after uh, I got my undergraduate degree, I spent maybe a year doing this kind of volunteer work for a literacy program. And during that year, I applied for my MFAs. So I, while I didn't go straight directly from an undergraduate program to an MFA program. It was pretty soon afterwards. Um, and I don't think, I don't think every writer, every person recommends that. Right. Um, for me, I just really felt committed to, um, to my goals, which was to, to write something, to write a manuscript and, and, and to find the time and the space to write. So at that point I was, really, I I really wanted to, I really wanted to stick to those goals. And, and I think the MFA program did offer me that uh, completely. So I, um, I decided to go to Cornell, I I decided to attend to attend Cornell, which um, their MFA program is very small. Um, Each cohort, each poetry cohort is only about four four people, um, and and that's not. I I, th- I would say that has its benefits and it has its drawbacks, right? So, um, so if you really have, you know, a cohort that you vibe well with, uh, then that's a really wonderful and lucky thing. Um, and, and and larger programs, I think there might be more of a, you know, um, more of a chance to find community and find people that you um that you can really connect with i 
not not to say that I didn't find those people. I found those people at Cornell. Um, I think I think my main struggle through my years of graduate school is just learning how to live in a small town mm-hmm. um, and figuring out myself and, and knowing later that that I, I thrive more in in big cities or, 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 or places where I can feel more free um, as an individual. But I'd say that my time at Cornell was really special to me. I, I set a lot of goals for myself and I, I think I really stuck by those goals. That's great. Um, So did your, did you start working on your first book through the MFA program? Like how, how did your first book come into being? So my first book um, is called Mad Honey Symposium. And I, some of the poems in there are from earlier, from, from, um, you know, before I started my MFA program, but I would say most of it, I, um, uh, I, I worked on during my, MFA program, um, because that program allows you this wonderful kind of luxurious time, um, to, to really focus on writing. It's, it's like, you can't really, at least I, I couldn't take that for granted. So I was working and, and, and just trying to develop the poems for this manuscript. So, so the, so the, so the book that came out, Mad Honey Symposium, that's a little bit different from the thesis that I turned in. Um, um, the thesis that I turned in was similar, but it was, but but I ended up taking that thesis and really refining it um, before it became this book. And um, so so I I started my MFA in the fall of 2010, and um, the book was accepted by uh, Alice James books in, in like December of 2012. So that doesn't actually sound that um, long of a time frame, but I, I would say that after the book was accepted, there was a long period of um, scaling back and editing and revising that, that, you know, continues long after um, like getting a book contract. Um, so I would say that my first book, a, a huge portion of it was actually, um, written during my time at Cornell. So your new book is Oculus and it came out this year, I believe, right? 2019. Yes. And, yep. And, um, how long did it take you to get from, well, I guess I could do the math, but <laughs> what was the, the lessons uh, you learned from your first book that helped you get to your second book and and how was the process of writing each book at different book different from each other and how were they similar yeah um so with mad honey symposium i just i i realized that i am a poet who is very driven by themes and obsessions um so that book came together because there were just these tropes that that I couldn't help writing about right so so from 
from the honey badger to like this to all the poisonous like toxic foods that you can consume to this like kind of rich plant life natural world and like flora and fauna um, all of that really pervaded that first book and that first manuscript so i i was very much in entwined with these particular tropes and images and um but at the same time i was also writing other poems that didn't necessarily fit um, into that those threads that I was kind of weaving for that book. Um, like I noticed at some point that I was also writing a lot of poems that had to that were exploring technology and um, this kind of artificial world that served almost as a foil to the natural world that I was um, exploring in Mad Honey Symposium. And I ended up taking those poems as a, a separate thread and, and, and following that thread and, and seeing where that would take me um, kind of led me to Oculus. Like one of the earliest poems that I knew didn't belong in my first book I, I wrote a poem about this electronic wasteland. So, so this town that specialized in in recycling people's dead electronics, and and um, because that was the main um, that that was the main economic activity of this town, it it it, it was also kind of poisoning the people, and um, and these kind of situations that we are contending with in in this specific uh specific time in history this very specific moment in history started uh it it really compelled me to think a lot more about um not just technology and the way we see ourselves uh and social media but also also where it all fits into this other narrative of um of how how we live because of technology and um, intimacy and what it means to live in a city surrounded by people and surrounded by images. Um, and so all of these ideas and tropes really contrasted to what I was trying to do with my first book. So that became something separate that I, you know, began to work on later. That's so I love your description of these two books as a foil for each other. They kind of it almost makes them seem like companion books and the fact mm-hmm. that they're opposite uh in how they approach uh their their dive into the world. So I, I just find that really interesting. Um one of the major themes in Oculus um, it seems to be about seeing, being seen and how we reveal ourselves, who is doing the viewing and what the power structures are in viewing and, um, and being seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that theme and, and what draws you to that discussion? Yeah, thank you. Um, so I think, you know, I started by writing these poems about electronics, right? And that led like like from the very physical kind of toll that these dead electronics are taking on the bodies of these uh, Chinese people in this um, village, I 
from there, I, I went on to think about like, you know, well, our bodies are constantly juxtaposed against or, or, you know, pressing up against uh, technologies and screens. Right. And, and that becomes a kind of performance in a lot of ways where we're constantly performing these days, whether through images, whether through, you know, pictures, whether through, through even, even writing documentation and how, and how today that, that, becomes this sort of uh, it, it spins a, a another kind of narrative right um i started thinking a lot more about it too when i was uh researching anna may wong who is the first uh asian american um hollywood film actress right um so so when i learned about her and her story i thought a lot about not just not just like our relationship to social media and but but it's it's larger than that it's it's more about a relationship to being seen right to the gaze and and um and and that was happening in the 20th century um so her life uh uh her her hollywood career also also was was extremely at the mercy of um of these questions about about how 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 to be seen and whether that's even possible and um the spectacle and the gaze yeah the anime wong poems are i i really love that series of poems in the collection and I love that you brought the idea into it of her time traveling through the years to be able to interact with um, other stages of Asian portrayal in cinema from mm-hmm. Breakfast and Tiffany's to 16 Candles. And I'm, I'm wondering how you thought to bring into the, the time travel aspect of that into it. Um, and whether you think uh, she's <laughs> whether what what future can she find as as times keep changing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I realized uh, when I started writing the poem, I think I knew from the very beginning that I wanted something else besides just kind of a persona poem that's based on research or you know, I would research her life and I would try to recreate that based on persona. I wanted to, I wanted to just imagine, right. Uh, I wanted to introduce some kind of speculative element into it. And, um, and I thought, you know, what, what, like I, I felt as I was researching Anna Mae Wong, I, I felt this, almost cosmic connection to her, um, just based on her biography, based on what she has said, how, like, the the candid things she has said about the roles that she had to play and also the life that she has to lead, which is a very liminal life. So I felt this cosmic connection. And yet, you know, how how am I I going to communicate with her? And and I thought that poetry is, like, this perfect... um, engine or this perfect device that allows me to kind of communicate with her through persona. Right. Um, and, and I think that like I was thinking about 
I mentioned earlier, I, I started with that thread of like technology. What what does this current moment, um, the fact that like there's so so much like so many dead electronics like accumulating. This was not a problem maybe even back uh, like a, a few hundred years ago, right? So, um, so I was really thinking about like playing with time and how time not only seems like it shifts so much, but it also seems like it stays the same, right? In a lot of ways, like huge, like, like shifts are, have occurred since anime Wong lived and died, but at the same time, some things are still the same, right? Um, and, and a lot of that is, is like Hollywood's treatment of the Asian American experience. And, and, and that is something that I really wanted to explore uh, with the time travel um, element of the poems. And, and I wanted to also explore her sense of hope and her expectations versus, you know, what has transpired um, in, in film. And I, I like that you bring up like the future future too, which is something that I'm also interested in too, like how, how um how the book is mostly kind of set in in the past and and like the recent past or the recent or or the present and i am also really interested in furthering the conversation by introducing um you know if if not like a vision of the future but just um a way to make the future uh better <laughs> so yeah yeah, that's really interesting. So um, I was also thinking, um, as we're discussing Anime Wong, and also, you also kind of provide perspectives on um, other figures uh, throughout history. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm blanking on them right now. But the question really is, uh, do you think poetry is one of the things that has power to allow people to see culture and other human beings from new angles and kind of um, reclaim uh, the, the, the storytelling about people from history and from the current day as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think you phrased that really well. And um, um, I think I, so recently I did an interview with this uh, brilliant uh, academic or, or this brilliant uh, writer, Anne Chen, who, who she, she has a book called Orientalism um, that explores a lot of the same tropes that I've explored in Oculus, including this historical figure, um, Afa Moy, the, the Chinese lady um, that I've also addressed in, in, in Oculus. And uh, she, she says something like, you know, at the level of history, this woman is lost. She is lost to history. Um, we cannot really locate her in the archives beyond what we have, right? Um, but at the level of theory, there are many more possibilities for her. And, um, and in my interview, I remembered mentioning um, at the level of theory, there, there, there is possibility. And also 
on the at the level of art and at the level of poetry um there there is possibility for this woman to be resurrected in certain ways um but not to not to kind of discount the very real fact that she is lost uh, to history and, and that history has really failed her in, in so many ways, right? Um, so I think just giving myself the permission to, to really imagine um, her perspective was really important for me because, because that hadn't really been written before. Um, every article, um, every piece of, you know, piece of history that exists about this woman is from the perspective of somebody who was consuming her or somebody who didn't really know her or kind of othered her. And I really wanted to emphasize her interiority, which has never been reported, right? So, yes. Yeah, uh, well, I think it's effective because as soon as I got done reading that poem, I actually started Googling because I was like, oh, this was a real person. I want to know more about this human being who existed in the world. And there were a few people that I think popped up in your book and made me more curious to learn more about it. So um, I, I also, um, I'm personally a fan of, of pop culture in poetry (laughs) and your, and your book definitely includes some of that um, uh, throughout the course of it. And I, although others kind of feel that pop culture can kind of date it or make it feel like, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for here. Like, like it, it sticks, sticks it to a specific time as opposed to making mm-hmm. it quote unquote timeless. Yeah. And I'm yeah. wondering your perspective on that. I mean, you obviously included it, but mm-hmm. um, I would love to hear some of your thoughts on that discussion. Yeah. Great. Um, I think this whole idea of like timeless is also built upon a lot of assumptions and power structures. Right. Um, so like this idea that if you don't mention any specific piece of work or, or anything like that, it, it suddenly, it suddenly makes your work less timeless. Um, but but I, I don't believe that is true. I, I, I you know, for example, um, even Anna Mae Wong can be used as an example, right? Like she, uh, like I think, I think a lot of her movies are terrible, right? Um, a lot of her movies are outdated, but I like, but like her kind of performances and her emoting and, and her, you know, and her, words um like like to me they're still very relevant um today to to the asian american woman's experience um and and for me i wanted to connect three like like three main very disparate you know periods of time right uh afamoy 
was in the she she arrived on the scene in the 19th century Anna Mae Wong was in the 20th century and I myself the poet live in the 21st century and and how you know all of these centuries are tied together uh, by all sorts of things right so so for me um, introducing a time machine that is the that is the that kind of presents I guess the thesis that that time is never that, that that time is always going to be connected to itself if that makes sense um um so if i'm going to mention like a, a pop cultural term then then that that is a reflection of this moment and this reality right now um and and that and and therefore that will have a place in um in in the records that 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 we are the the cultural record um that we have right um like how what 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 are writers if they cannot somehow reflect upon their culture at that given moment that that time right um so i think i think for me you know, it doesn't matter if, if somebody, whatever, like 200 years from now, won't know, you know, Janelle Monet, then they can look her up, right? Um, and there is a record on her, right? So, um, so you know, I, I don't worry about these things as much. I feel like, especially now with the information age, everybody, everybody has so much information at their fingertips, right? Even you kind of going and learning about um, these, these, these women in, in the book, you know, that, that is also uh, a symptom of, of how we read today. Right. Um, um, so, so I think, I think that kind of like sentiment that, um, that writing has to be timeless is, is outdated because that maybe the person who spoke that or, or talked like that, didn't have the internet he was just like too lazy to go look it up at the library right so yeah <laughs> yeah. yeah for sure I um I think that's a very good point that you you can't have a record of this time without mm-hmm. referencing the time in which you exist yeah. so um yeah I, beautiful response. <laughs> um, would you like to share one of the poems from the collection? Sure. Um, let me let me find one real quick. Now I'm yeah, like, ooh, should I find should I find um, like a, a pop culture poem? <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> well, yeah, sure. I, I'll read this poem. Um, called The Five Faces of Faye Valentine. Um, so this this poem is a, a very nakedly pop culture poem. Um, and it's after Cowboy Bebop, which is a which is an anime from the nineties that I that I kind of grew it up is, watching. Yeah, it's one of my favorite animes mm-hmm. and I recommend anybody go watch that if you want an introduction to anime. That is an excellent place to start. Yeah. Um So, yes, this poem. One, her battle face is indistinguishable from her poker face. 
No servant dares to romance a face like that. Eyebrows smirk, her mouth a lawless husk. Master swindlers, beware, she will one-up you with a flawless fate. A fugitive wind shrouds her name, her debt. There's a bounty on her swagger. Two, girl, orphanage, accident, cryogenic sleep. Black dog serenades rouse her from tides. She doesn't recognize the child on the bed tapes, purple hair, white ribbons tying her features together. Jupiter jazz crows her childhood sleep until the earth disappears. Three, woman, always running, always running out of fuel, always straddling a slow horse, red tail, stranded in space with an unloaded pistol. This is what night imagined when it imagined a feral woman, jaw open and swiping, windward, loose claw, less, sco- less sigh than scowl. The last civet in the universe gnashes her teeth against the glass. Four, questioning. Is there mercy for a mercenary out there in the writhing galaxy where jetties disappear into harbors drained of antimatter? Bounty hunters lurk in the undertow, evening larks afoot. Five, conquest. Here's her blackjack, her torn jacket, her din. Her turn, her ammunition, her departure. Unrecognizable cities rise from empty shuttles, husks for drones. See you, space cowboy, screams the Callisto moon. On nights when the wind strips the highway bare, only the stars hunt her down. Mm, I love that piece. Thank you. Um, I especially love the phrase, uh, feral, the, that phrase referring feral woman. Um, and I, since um, I'm always interested in when somebody is working with an existing character or mm-hmm. um, or even a historical figure and kind of like interacting with that original source um, material or person um, and how you approach that mm-hmm. process. Yeah, so with this poem, I almost, it, it was part ekphrasis, right? So it was part kind of um, a poem that responds to another art form. Um, and it was also part like persona, right? Because I'm also kind of imagining um, this character or this character that exists already and and trying to mind some kind of interiority so so even though it's in third person it um it's kind of a character study right um so i i had i had a it, this was one of those poems that kind of just spilled out of me after i binge watched cowboy bebop right um i i didn't think a lot about um about it, it, it just kind of came out. <laughs> um, but, but I, I would say that I work very, um, I, I work a lot with, with a persona and looking at, looking at um, either, either historical figures or fictional characters that already exist in some way. Um, and I, and I find that 
that I, I, I look for the angle that hasn't been addressed, right? Um, I look for the, the angle that might have been missed um, or, or I try to have a conversation with the person. Imagine, imagine, you know, what that conversation would look like. Um, because again, I'm thinking about power structures, um, not necessarily in this Cowboy Bebop case, but power structures of who gets to tell the story, um, how is the story told, from whose perspective is the story, um, and and also like how valid is that perspective, um, or how you know how has the person chosen to represent this woman or this uh, character, right? Yeah. So. Um... Who's, what stories are you working on now and what can the world expect from you in the future? Oh, great. Uh, um, <laughs> so right now it, it, it's always this kind of, it's always a vulnerable space, right? When, um, when you're in between projects um, or when you've been working on the same project for such a long time that you just get really comfortable in there. And then when, when it comes out into the world, suddenly you're almost left without this, you know, without this solid foundation. Um, maybe it's like the cyclical thing that writers sometimes feel. Um, but right now there are a lot of threads that I'm, I've been thinking about um, and, and, and hoping for, you know, these threads to kind of stick and, and for me to be able to, um, to, to, to form a solid foundation on, on one of these, um, kind of new, like obsessions and writer threads. And I would, so one of these threads is, um, is ghost stories and, and Fox stories. So I, I have been reading a lot of, um, old, tales um from the Liaozai, which is like strange um stories like like roughly translated as strange stories um there is like a compilation of these stories um in chinese by uh pu Songling, who's kind of one of the great writers of china and um i've been reading these and these stories and 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 just like really fascinated by them, um, by the gender politics in these old stories. Um, a lot of them like are focused on like women who are liminal beings or not, not technically women, but like Fox women, uh, ghost women. So, so these kind of feminine characters that are supposed to be these liminal beings and how, and how they interact with like, um, the usual usually the hero of these stories is some kind of like like male scholar right um and so i've been really interested in them mostly because you know there it's a chance to kind of learn about um like the lore of 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 old china um and new china and um and also i'm interested in kind of rewriting some of these ghost stories and these Fox stories, uh, because like I mentioned earlier, you know, um, almost all, like pretty much all actually, like pretty much all of the stories, um, that are in 
on the record are written by men. Um, and, and these stories all kind of, you know, treat the female feminine as this demonic other in a lot of ways, right? Um, unless she can be, unless she can be tamed or, you know, domesticated. Um, and there are a lot of stories where like these like fox and ghost women, they're, they're like supreme beauty and also their supreme kindness. And they, they, they make like wives and mothers, uh, they become like wives and mothers to these, um, like wives to these, uh, scholars, right? So, I'm, I've been reading a lot of like scholarly articles about, about these stories too. Um, and, and it's all been kind of a very fascinating process. So I like my recent obsession is, is like these ghost stories, these Fox demon stories. And, and I'm also trying to rewrite a few of them for, for myself. That sounds wonderful. I, I look forward to, <laughs> to reading some of those in the future. I hope. Um, yeah yeah thank you (laughs) uh so to kind to wrap things up i would love if you would share something that you're reading or some other form of media that you're loving right now or finding inspiring oh great question um so uh for for reading i um i'm kind of in the beginning stages of reading a few things few books so like one of them is the idiot by elaf Batman, and I'm enjoying that. Um, and I'm also reading the, the those Pusanling stories. So, so there's a whole like anthology of them that I've been I've been reading constantly. Um, uh, and I fi- I recently finished uh, Ghost of by Diana Koi Nguyen. Um, excellent book. Um, from Omnidon she she that that book was really magical to me it just uh it just um contended with grief and loss in a way that I I've just never seen before um um and I have been let's see have been watching have I been like I watched I watched a really quirky movie on the um on the flight like that I took a couple of days ago um, that I'm still thinking about now. Um, it's like this Japanese movie called, um, called Oh Lucy. Um, and I think the director is a, is, is a woman. Um, and it, it has like Josh Hartnett is in it for, <laughs> for some reason it's about this, like it's about this older woman who um, starts taking an English class and, 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 um, Josh Hartnett is the teacher and he makes her take on this alter ego called Lucy. And, and he also makes her wear this like a uh, blonde wig and she like, for some reason becomes obsessed with him and go like, and, and like, like he disappears and then she goes to LA and I hated the premise of it. I mean, I, I like, as I was watching it, I was like, what the hell? Like he is like such a creep. Like why, did he like make you wear a, a, a blonde wig? Right. Um, it's just awful. This is colonization. You know, I was, um, I was really pissed, but, but I really loved the movie, um, because it, it really centered on her, um, her character. 
and and like her character's vulnerabilities and um and and you know weaknesses and and also you know and also it, it just ended up being very like uh like charming in the end like like i i, I want to see more films about like um about like older women right who who don't have like kind of these traditional like like married married children lives right so that's yeah there's not Mm -hmm. yeah there's not too many of those kinds of stories so that's that sounds really interesting yeah yeah it was called um oh lucy (laughs) (laughs) i'll have to check it out so uh thank you so much for being on the show and for having this wonderful conversation with me yeah, thank you so much for having me. I know we had a lot of uh, technology blips, but thank you. Yeah. We we had some technical technical difficulties at the beginning, but we worked it out and and I think it turned out well. So, thank you again. And this is New Books and Poetry, a podcast of the New Books Network, and thank you everybody for listening. Mm-hmm.